Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan finished this Techno Roll series with an interview with author Michelangelo Matos. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or shall I say Techno Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness. And today, it's a big, big day. We're welcoming Michelangelo Matos himself to, to finalize our discussion of his book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. Michelangelo, welcome. Thanks. So this has been a long journey. We actually tried to do this interview three, four years ago, and I was totally not prepared. And so I've spent some time preparing. Thank sure. you for your patience on that. But the book basically answers the big question of why did it take so long for electronic dance music, which essentially conquered the Western European popular music world in the late 1980s, why did it take so long to become a dominant force in the American music business? Is that a fair statement of your thesis? Yes, yes. That was that is the thesis. That's the whole reason for being. Um, I had just realized that like this was starting to happen for real. I was on a I was flown out by Red Bull Music Academy to their this confab. They were basically trying to staff an American side of their business. And I was there sort of being headhunted, only I didn't understand it as that at the time. I didn't know what the hell was going on. But I was talking to people and they were like, yeah, dance music is going to blow up in America. And I was like, is it really? And that's when I got the idea to write a book like, oh, maybe that's the book I should write is the book about why this is happening. And it took a while to understand fully what was happening because that confab was basically like-minded people, people who had been in the underground of, you know, been in the DJ world in some form or other, um, be it dance music or hip hop or a commingling of the two. There were a number of people from all, you know, a lot of sides of things musically. And 
that just said to me that, oh, this is what's going to blow up. But then I started going to the festivals and realized, oh, that's not what's blowing up. This stuff is what's blowing up. So it was more of an EDM uh, as a, uh, not as an overarching umbrella genre, but EDM as the new festival sound. That that was really kind of what was exploding, not electronic mm-hmm. music as you and I as electronic music uh, appreciators might uh, might consider. I thought for a while there might be an all boats lifting sort of thing going on. And I think to a degree there was, but basically what people liked was the stuff I didn't like for the most part, you know, the, the big dumb bro stuff essentially. And even in that area, I have found things to like, but yeah, that was sort of dismaying at the time. I think that may have been part of what kept me from wanting to write a book until it became very obvious that like, okay, this really has to happen because I was reading all the coverage of the explosion from, you know, people who really had no idea what they were talking about. Even the, even the people who did it well, who did good jobs because they're professionals, didn't understand the background of this stuff at all. They really had no idea. That made it very incumbent upon me to do the book because again, I waited, I think the, the gap between wanting to write this book and actually selling the proposal was something like a year and a half. And I think that entire time I kept thinking, well, who's going to do it? And then I realized no one's going to do it if I don't. And thankfully you were there to do it. So, and as you said, the stuff you liked isn't what got popular. And I had a very similar experience in the punk underground in the late eighties, early nineties, like in no way did I think that I was we were working towards the coming of Nickelback. But, you know, one day well, it was Nickelback is a very extreme. I mean, does Nick, I guess Nickelback does come from that lineage in a sense. right? Yeah, their, their class is post grunge in a way. And, and, yes. and I've done many episodes on how that whole thing happened. And I've even come to right. peace with Nickelback and Creed and, you sure. know, um, it's, it's all the post Pearl Jam stuff. Yeah, the Yarl music. But so do you see the mass popularity like the mediocrity is a function of the mass popularity or just the truism that most stuff is not very good? I mean, even if you go back to the hardcore era, which, of course, was pop music in England at the time, most of it's bad. You know, you always have to pick out the gems in any genre, even a tiny underground genre. Some of well, I guess it depends on whether you're referring to like Euro hardcore, British hardcore, UK hardcore, the breakbeat stuff, because to me, that stuff is all amazing. But I also think that there is a real, you know, what really started the stuff that really became EDM was things that were already popular, like trance and things that were already popular or, you know, became popular, like the stuff that is now sort of posthumously termed blog house because blog house was barely known as that at the time, but like that's, you know, and then you had in that period, you had younger kids calling it electro which is hilarious because I actually, this was a point of, uh, uh, this was a question that an editor recently asked me about a piece that I have, that I had written for somebody that still hasn't run. It was supposed to be, um, you know, a special issue dedicated to a certain artist. And I'd written about uh, that artist and I referenced in that 
piece the fact that people in the mid 2000s were calling this stuff electro and they were deeply confused by it you know because that term means something else to everybody else or to people who are older or whatever so that was sort of a rebirth in a sense that people were re sort of relearning the language or hearing it for the first time and making up their own terms that already existed um yeah, it but, seems like there was kind of a – this happened a couple of times, like how you had UK dubstep and then all of a sudden American dubstep kind of came. And while you can tell where it came from, it's obviously a whole new thing that probably deserves a name. Same with Electro uh, coming out as an 80s breakbeat kind of hip-hop-ish style. And then in the 2000s, it being completely just grabbed as anything with a growly kind of retro synth sound. Right, but you also do have a word for that American dubstep. It's bro step. That's what that means, you know? It means that stompy shit, that like growling bass stuff. So there's that. But to, I mean, I feel like that stuff just got popular not because there was any sort of intentional groundswell. It really did seem to bubble up. Um, you know, and, and it was kids discovering it. There is maybe a, the one thing I'm thinking of historically that might be a sort of, uh, actually is not a bad referent is all that post hardcore slash like late nineties emo stuff that really was all ages music. I wrote something about this that is no longer online. Unfortunately, it's an oral history of a Minneapolis uh, venue called the Foxfire Coffee Lounge. It was an all-ages coffee shop that had a venue in the back. And that was where all the DeSoto and Jade Tree bands would play because nobody would have known about those bands outside of that fan base. They were exclusive to that fan base and that fan base wasn't going to bars yet. So people who were booking venues like first avenue and seventh street entry which is where i was working at the time not in the office but i was a, i was just like a floor worker but i remember well going to see you know just going to the foxfire a lot and seeing bands that i would never have seen at first avenue or the entry and they were big bands but you wouldn't have heard of them if you were if you were outside of that realm at all and that's even before you know the internet a lot of what happened in the mid 2000s is that everybody got online and that this music spread that way. That's a big part of it, too. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go all the way back to the beginning and hear our first song snippet. This is Donna Summer, produced by Giorgio Moroder for the inevitable I Feel Love. Donna Summer's I Feel Love, produced by Giorgio Moroder from 1977, commonly considered the first quintessential electronic dance music track. So if you had to pick one of these factors to be the number one reason why 
electronic dance music took so long to become dominant in America? Is it the geography, the sheer size of America? Is it the history, especially the disco backlash? Um, is it the nature of the American authorities and all the moral panics and, and drug war type stuff or something else? It's all of the above plus machismo, basic machismo, and of course, you know, homophobia. That's where this stuff always lay. That was a big part of why the why the mid '90s push for this, or the late '90s push for this stuff in a, in the U.S. was tie, so tied closely to rock and to hip hop. These were, you know, masculine genres, and. Groups like the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers uh, basically, you know, I, I mean, the Chemical Brothers, it's a little unfair to say, but those early records are totally like, you know, booyah, you know, really boisterous, really like energetic in a very male sort of way. Fatboy Slim, obviously so. So you have the big push for that stuff as a new kind of like macho thing. And I think that has, uh, I think that sort of framework made it difficult for dance music to break out per se as dance music. Because for rock fans, house music meant like, finally by C.C. Peniston, you know, stuff on the radio sometimes or stuff at the clubs that may not have like been offensive per se, but was not like the main diet for like, Joe Rock fan or whatever. And it's very important to understand that all the way through the 90s, the music press in particular and the music business was geared, was oriented to the white male rock fan. That was the default audience it was considered. That changed during the 90s demographically. It changed a lot. The music changed a lot. And so did like the address of the business. But that also became, you know, but the way that it was being marketed had to catch up with the demographic shift and that took a lot longer. So I don't think it's necessarily that EDM is any less macho in a lot of ways. It's ex exactly as macho, but there's also a lot of, you know, it's a bigger demographic spread responding to this music and it's a bigger demographic spread being, being ministered to, by which I mean female as well as male, not exclusively male, uh, and not to any great degree, you know? I think the music business is getting better at that sort of thing, but it has a ways to go, uh, like everybody does. So, yeah. Well, it seems like the history of, of electronic dance music in America is kind of American pop artists working maybe with European electronic artists. Uh, Donna Summer with I Feel Love, she worked with Giorgio Moroder on that. And that's a that was a, a perfect kind of crossover, early crossover moment between America and Europe kind of tagging back and forth. And it just seemed like America just continued to reject and reject and reject things. I heard another interview that you did where you talked about how, uh, you know, uh, in France, they considered themselves late to the game because house music only started getting big in like 92. And yet in America, mm -hmm. we, we were still kind of stuck, uh, kind of going nowhere until the early 2000s. I would say we were on it a lot earlier simply because there were pop hits earlier. Like if you look at it that way, if you look at it through the, the lens of the charts, then house music is making inroads throughout the late 80s and early 90s. They're just not very deep inroads. They're not 
fan inroads. That's the big advantage of selling rock over selling pop in the United States. Rock fans will buy albums. They will pay attention to the narrative. They'll, you know, they'll keep up with the gossip pages in Rolling Stone. They'll buy tickets forever. Americans will buy tickets to rock bands forever. You know, we see that all the time. So I think that's the big difference there. Um, it's not that America is completely ignorant of house music. It's completely ignorant of the dance floor context of house music. They know certain records. They just don't know that it's a whole sort of lifestyle thing or that it's a whole sort of cultural thing. And there are many reasons for that. The obvious ones are racism and homophobia, and those things can never be discounted here. Like that is a big, big, big part of the reason that it has taken so long or that it took so long. Yeah, one of the one of the things that we kind of tried to reiterate through the series was the fact that even though there was no mainstream hits or not many mainstream hits being made and not a lot of money being made by the music industry. Obviously, there was a really big underground scene that was healthy or as healthy as it can be being run by teenagers and uh, out of their minds on, on, on acid and ecstasy and being shut down by the police and everything else like that. But, you know, there was this rave scene that was going on that a lot of people were hip to. Numerically, it might have been small, but it was still very important. And I, the majority of your book kind of dealt with that entire upswell, that that counterculture. And it's kind of interesting to me now that rave no longer seems to hold this essential place in the discussion. Do you think that raving is a counterculture and activity is still a force in America or is it largely being co-opted and swallowed by the new consumer culture scene? Um, well, all I know is that for I can only speak for myself and for what I can see around me, which is to say that having lived in New York a long time and gone clubbing a lot there, gone to parties a lot there and being back in the Twin Cities for the last six and a half years and going to parties a lot, people just refer to it as rave. They just say, I'm going to the rave or I'm going raving. If I mean, there's still a lot of warehouses here. There's at least one big warehouse venue that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about out loud. So um, and there used to be two, but, but then the pandemic happened. Um, yeah, no, rave is just a default term. That's all. That's what it means now. It means to go clubbing in and, you know, in a warehouse or it means to go see somebody identified with that world in a non mainstreamish environment. It's sometimes like there, you know, sometimes this is at a sports bar in downtown Minneapolis, which has proven very hospitable to that crowd. Um, you know, it's not a place that most of us would go normally, but it is a but they like us and we like it. Um, but rave itself is become a bad. I mean, in America, it was always a sort of value neutral term in a way, not because it was it, I, what I mean is that it has that it stayed basically the same whether the parties were totally a totally word of mouth flyer only you know way pre-internet or after the late 90s when things got corporate and parties started happening in clubs like promoters started moving into clubs i don't think the term ever totally died i think there is a certain racial aspect to that term it tends to mean white people, but it also has a lot, but it also has more of a purely subcultural 
uh, sense to it that uh, I can't say transcends race, but is not necessarily tied to race. Like, you know, there are, and it depends on the city. Um, one, actually, one thing that I'm really heartened by here in the Twin Cities is that the scene has grown and become a lot more diverse in the last few years. And that's very intentional on the part of everybody, really. So that's been a boon. Um, and, you know, it's a rave. <laughs> that's, that's, really, that's really what it means, I think. And let's hear another track. This is Your Love from Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal, 1987. <laughs> Your Love with Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal, 1986, Chicago House Classic. One of the things that's fascinated me about doing this history is this relationship between and rivalry between Chicago House and what was once New York hip hop and has become since become a national language. And House, of course, has become an international language. Do you think I mean, was that the way that rivalry sort of played out baked in? because of the rise and fall of disco and the slow rise of hip hop. I mean, was there any chance that house could have held on to Chicago held on as the dominant African-American regional music of Chicago into the nineties and contended more evenly with hip hop or was the way things played out kind of baked in by the history of the disco sucks backlash and the way hip hop encroached into the rock market after run DMC. That's something a Chicago historian would be better suited to tell you. Um, like I'm, I am a situational Chicago historian in the sense that I write about Chicago house music, but I also do not have that larger grasp, um, particularly of the black community. I just don't. Um, I can tell you about what I've talked to people about, and that's pretty much in the book, you know? I think there's a, I, I don't know that that rivalry really exists anymore. I don't think it's existed in any real sense for a long time. Um, because I don't feel like there's much rivalry between genres in that way now that things have shifted so dramatically in terms of the way people listen. Uh, you listed a, a large number of scenes and styles, DJs, producers, everything that, that you ended up having to leave out of the book. Uh, yeah. Because I, I feel like a couple of years ago, you know, uh, books had to be around 400 pages. And now now we've got like 600, 700 page hardcovers right. regularly. So I, I feel like, you know, a couple more years later, you could have fit more more stuff in there. Do you have any regrets as to what you had to leave out or what you no, had I to cut to make I, could, I don't think I could add more to it because they were strict about the about the word count. Um you know, books have a word count like pieces do. You are like, actually, the interesting thing I learned is the reason why. The reason why is because they measure the boxes beforehand. The <laughs> books have to fit into the boxes and therefore they can't be that much bigger than they are. 
That's it's a just really a widget, good. right? It's just a widget. <laughs> That's the reason. That's the reason. So anyway, I uh, something one of you said on an earlier episode about my having to default leave out certain things. Um, I left. I mostly left trance out because because fuck it. <laughs> that's sacrilege. Sacrilege. That's the big reason why. The Tiesto other, cries. Like I mean, there's just not much to say about trance in the United States. It was big, and that was it. You know, like it's not like. I mean, I know there are stories galore, I'm sure, but those stories are not that different from the stories you would tell about any other style or any other, you know, group of fans. Not in America, not in the 90s. I think there are, I mean, there's a lot I would, I don't know that I would put anything in anymore. I don't think I would take anything out either because, I mean, I made all of those decisions on purpose. So I, if, I mean, if I were to, somehow update the thing which is not a real uh which is not a realistic idea um the book didn't sell that well and my uh publishers have shown no interest in you know furthering this line in that way which makes sense but and and also the climate is very different than it was when simon's book came out very different like it is you know it's tooth and claw like just across the book business. So you are really lucky if your book is set, like if your book isn't selling, then they're not interested. It always, it always made me a bit uh, sad to imagine there won't be a revised or expanded edition because there's uh, a, a chapter even further uh, where I read a extended version of it, I think on Red Bull, I'm not sure, but it, it was, was on somewhere... Red Bull Music Academy. It was one of three chapters that I wound up. Uh, so the so the future chapter from 1992, that chapter, and then there was a chapter on the three electronica tours of 1997 that appeared in the Pitchfork Review. Those were the three chapters I cut. Yeah, and the extended versions were just... Marvelous. Like, yes, uh, I, I, no, I, love, first, I love the book. The, first, the very first further chapter is my favorite chapter from the book. That's the best one by far. But there was no room for it. It would like including that in the book would have just been indulgent. Oh, it's very sad. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that that maybe other snippets or pieces or uh, well, they excerpt- continue to be. I'm working on something now that is based in the interviews. Um this will probably, I don't think I'm giving anything too far away here. Um, I'm working, just starting to work now for the Detroit Free Press on a history of Zoot's Coffee House, which was like, they had a, they had a Monday night called Exat, Experimental and uh, Ambient Techno. So this was like a big hang. This was where all of the Detroit uh, promoters would get together every Monday night to plan so they weren't stepping on each other's toes. That's fascinating. Right? Yeah. There's all sorts of this stuff. A lot of pieces I've written in the time since the book came out, even before the book came out, are, is, is rooted in the interviewing I did. Um, one piece, another for Red Bull Music Academy that I really like is the one about, uh, uh, what was it called? House Nation Under a Groove in Minneapolis, which took place in the 7th Street entry and was like the first real, uh, you know, attempt at that here. And that was Kevin Cole, who now works at KEXP in Seattle. 
Like he was like flying the flag for this stuff in the Twin Cities. And and he was very much my way into it musically because he was buying at Northern Lights. They had a dance shop upstairs. I'll never forget going in there one day. And they were like, they had just opened up. I forget the title of it, but it was the, uh, it was the, I think it X-101 or X-102. It was one of the underground resistance 12 inches that played backward from the center. Yeah, I loved all of those crazy records that they'd been putting out there together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that one, like, like that was mind blowing. You've never seen anything like it. Cool. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to ask you if it was a good thing that it took so long for EDM to mainstream in America. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so having seen the way the history played out where it kind of followed the trajectory of punk in America, where there was a series of underground regional scenes, each one, each wave would kind of crest a little higher on the shore than the one before it, but it would fall back for various reasons. Until you get to Nirvana. Yeah. And then, it, and then it just blows up. And this similar thing happens uh, with EDM, whether it's Daft Punk at Coachella or Skrillex a few years later. Right. Was right. it a good thing that that actually, uh, you know, that it stayed underground for so long and, and could nurture? I don't, 
I, I really don't know that it is a good thing. I don't, I mean, it's, it's a frustrating thing because essentially you're talking about how, you know, you, it, you get in back then, at least there was a longer time to cogitate over, you know, perceived grievances toward your subculture from the rest of the world or whatever. Um, I think there were, you know, I think that attitude was a lot more widespread because it was you were able to have that attitude for longer. People got caught up in that attitude and kept it for way longer than they needed to necessarily. So I think in that way, it's not very healthy. Um, I don't necessarily think that uh, anybody benefited from that, honestly. So. I think when you wrote the book in 2015, there was, or when it came out in 2015, rather, I feel there was still a real fear that that the boom, the EDM boom, would be followed with a big bust that would just like wipe out all it the did. games. And <laughs> but it's it interesting does. because because right after you released the book, I heard a podcast where you were talking about Tropical House, and then when I jumped forward and I heard another interview where you were uh, introducing your new book. Uh, several years later, and the opening to the show was a Tropical House song, like as the actual theme song for the show. So it's just kind of interesting to me how uh, maybe maybe there isn't still this goldmine, uh, music industry goldmine. But at this point, electronic music is basically just being folded into the mainstream alongside always rock, was. rap and, and other things. Was. The whole thing about the way that what happened essentially, and I outlined this in a you know, NPR asked me to do like a decade thing, which was great fun because I got to use outtakes. That's 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 a perfect example of where the outtakes went. I found all I literally went through the last chapter, the early draft of the last chapter and found all the quotes that I didn't that I cut from the book and used them. Um, and I also had this amazing recording of I quote somebody talking about I think it's Rob Light talking at the from CAA talking at this conference where he's comparing it to the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, uh, the EDM boom. And I hadn't used that. That had been sent to me by my friend, Carrie Mason, who had been for many years, the best correspondent on dance music in the world for billboard, or at least in America. And I, I was like, this is just sitting here and I get to use it. And I got to use it for that. That was great. Um, but what happened is right you know the book was supposed to come out in late 2014 and it was just delayed and delayed and delayed because i was racing at the clock trying to get the thing right and it you know it took a long time it took an extra six i was supposed to write it in like a year and it took like 18 months and so that was a disadvantage because by the time the book came out the backlash had hit and the that fall was or that late summer was the second uh or i suppose yeah published in 15 and then it would have been that fall when they had that other awful awful event in atlanta where all the kids were stranded i'm forgetting the name of it oh um, god fire festival no, no, not prairie. That was, that was no, even no, later. That was even that's later. later. And that's a whole other thing. That's like yeah. on an island. Yeah, no, yeah. this, no, this, this was, Atlanta. this was in Atlanta. And I had gone to the one the year before and was just horrified because it was nonstop bros in Native American headdresses. 
<laughs> like uh, everywhere you looked, it was Trump country. It was disgusting. And so and it was like the, the furthest thing from ever, the furthest thing ever possibly from the beginnings of house music. Tomorrow so, world. It was Tomorrow World. Tomorrow World in 16, I think. In Chattahoochee so, Hills. Yeah, it was a it was a nightmare. And it, it was like at that point, it was already heading south. You had the you had uh Robert Sillerman coming in and trying to take over something that had already fucking hit its prime. Like literally minutes before <laughs> Robert Sillerman comes in decides to put a billion dollars into EDM and everybody takes his money and goes home and he is stuck with the bill there. I, I cite in that NPR piece, the, I forget the exact figures, but I think within six months of going public that uh, his stock had plummeted to under a dollar. I think it had started at $15 a share. Just, yeah. Just a total boondoggle. What happened, though, is that it wasn't just like this collapsed and that was the end of it. It was the whole system of booking at festivals was recalibrated. And that was already in the works anyway because of Coachella. Coachella has always been majority electronic. It just doesn't sell itself as an electronic festival. And that's what happened with all the rock festivals. All the rock festivals started being mostly electronic music, just like the radio is mostly electronic music in some form or other. Electronic music has simply taken over everything and nobody acknowledges it. Yeah, there's certainly a there's certainly not a lot of distinction between much of the mainstream pop music being made and, and a lot of the, the kind of even some of the old school quality electronic music. I think they're they're borrowing the even from producers. that now. It's the same producers. They're yeah, basically the, just, I mean, it's the same, you know, the people who are making bedroom dance stuff or are making bedroom dance stuff are tomorrow's super producers. That's the pipeline now. It's like the, it's like the minor leagues. Yeah. And the one area that we get to keep everything is that there's still acceptance. There's acceptance for electronic music, even though there was a backlash against EDM, we weren't pushed back down. It wasn't disco sucks and destroyed and just no, pushed out of the mainstream. What happened really is that EDM just got tired and everybody got sick of it. And Tropical House happens and people gravitate to that. People gravitate to disclosure. People dis are gravitating to, you know, what they call deep house or what I would just call bassier tech house. Like there's that started to happen by 2015 easily. That was already in progress. So by the later part of the decade, most of what you're hearing on the radio in terms of electronic music is all this, you know, codeined out like creepy crawly SoundCloud stuff. The, this sort of narcotized, narcoticized pop. Um, something like Billie Eilish, which, you know, that's a really good album. That first album, you know, those are really creative records and you're seeing that too. You're seeing more creative stuff starting to creep in as well. Um, even like Sophie, I'm not a hyper pop fan at all, but it's like Sophie's impressive. And those are like interesting ideas being carried out in a kind of public way. So it's an interesting time. Like, 
what happens after the EDM explosion is that, you know, you get the fallout and there's all sorts of fallout, but it hasn't gone anywhere. EDM has gone somewhere. Nobody's doing the big bullshit thing or most most people aren't doing it so much. Although I can imagine that will be coming back shortly as well. <laughs> Everything does. And let's hear our next track. This is Daft Punk's One More Time from the year 2000. And that was One More Time by Daft Punk from the year 2000. And one of the my favorite thing in the book is the mixography where you have um, a, a list of dance sets from DJs with each chapter listed in the back. And I, I just can't thank you for that enough. It, it's such a revelation to hear the music the way it was danced to on dance floors, <clears throat> the way it was mixed by actual DJs. And it really comes alive. That That for me was like the breakthrough and it shouldn't have been a breakthrough it's pretty obvious but to everyone else i suppose but last night a dj saved my life really explained to me how dj based music works and how the dj replaces the conductor or the band leader as the person who's watching the dance floor making sure the music is serving serving those needs but it seemed like there was like a golden age of rediscovering mixes like this around the time youtube came out people are digitizing their old cassettes have any mixes come forward since the book was published that you wished you could have included? Or is that kind of era of finding these treasures over? Oh, no. God, no. That's no. If it's quintupled. It's sextupled. It's tentupled. It's it, like, first of all, there is no there has the entire time I've been online. There has never been a shortage of DJ sets to listen to. Just never. There has always been somebody uploading their their collection. Somebody has digitized their tapes and uploaded them. Like that has been a constant since I started surfing the web. Um, maybe at low bit rates or whatever. Or in the mid two thousand, or sorry, the mid nineteen nineties, it would have been things like Beta Lounge. Those were all accessible. You could listen to those anytime. So uh, there was always that to listen to, and I did. Um, and since I, since the book came out, we have seen this rise of, I mean, we, we'd already seen the rise of SoundCloud and MixCloud, which is 2007 and 2008, respectively. Uh, you know, YouTube is 2005. So the way that we hear these things is just already well in place by the time the book comes out. I had downloaded a ton of mixes and listen to them in chronological order. I skipped from 96 to 99 because the writing had caught up with the listening. But by that point, I had already been listening. That, that's the point when DJ mix CDs are out, and that's, my, and that's a lot of what I listen to. So I feel like I'm on steady ground after that. But the earlier stuff, yes, it's revelatory. Um, since then, dance music has moved in a bunch of different directions, as it always does, and there are shitloads of mixes uh, around to chronicle them. Not to mention that if I were to do something similar today, it would be entirely possible to do 
just as interesting and revelatory a listing in the back using only things that had come to light in the time the book was since the book was published. So, yes, it's extremely easy to do because new sets are coming up constantly. What I was working with weren't things that I was finding necessarily on YouTube or on Mix or on Mixcloud or on so, to some degree on SoundCloud. I was finding things that were like, you know, somebody's collection and here are all the right click links. I was doing that. I downloaded a lot of things from Rave Archive, which then went off for a few years and then came back is and is now part of the Internet Archive. So a lot of the mixes in the back are from the Internet Archive. They're on there now. So, yeah, they're like it's it never ends. Yeah, I feel like anybody who says the Internet is forever uh, has never tried to go back and, and check out stuff that went on in the early 2000s rave scene, because all that stuff is just almost completely gone. There's there's shadows and there's there's dead links galore. And, you know, fortunately, we've fortunately or unfortunately, everything is kind of coalesced around five or six different sites where it all ends up somewhere. But, you well, know, the, the original links are gone. The primary one, like the navigating place I go to first is mixesdb.com, which is literally just mix like DJ set uh, track lists. And yeah. each one, you know, you look up somebody, you find however many mixes has, that somebody has bothered to put there. It's not complete. That's never possible. But it's enormous. There's so much to start with. And th and I was doing this before Nix's DB really had come along, or at least come along to me. I hadn't used it. I wasn't using it for the when I was uh, working on the book. Yeah, I find that there's uh, every set that you kind of mentioned in the Detroit uh, Electronic Music Festival. I was looking those up and often I would find uh, Mixes DB would have a reference to the set, how long it was. It was an MP3. It was 128 kilobytes per second, but no MP3 attached. And I'd be like, oh, God, where yeah. is this? Well, I like I uploaded onto my uh, what would it be? My Dropbox a few years ago the metro area set from december 2002 and my dropbox got like dinged because because ra put it up as their mix of the day and it got overloaded for downloads like i reached my limit and i got like reprimanded um so yeah a lot of that stuff is just gone i actually re-uploaded a handful of things to my uh mix cloud uh including a couple of the like the frankie bones a couple of the early Frankie Bones productions mixes. And, you know, there's things on there. There's things on another piece I'm very, it, that I'm very happy with is the, I did a primer to pirate radio DJ sets for the wire a few years ago. And it basically traces the line from the, from like 88 to the, to 2008 and the last mix on there is apple blim's fact mix from april of 2008 this was fact magazine's mix of the year it was gone completely gone and the only way that i could have like and i ended up putting up like a handful of those mixes because they were in my collection i ended up re-uploading them so that i could justify writing about them and that one 
like there was one website way, way, way back. So, oh no, I didn't, it wasn't on a website. I had the track list. I had copy pasted the track list years ago onto a word doc and I happened to have it. Yeah. I got to say, I, I appreciate all of your archiving, all of your accounts on the internet from sound, uh, maybe not SoundCloud, but I know Mixcloud, you have a really good account full of interesting stuff. And then you went and you meticulously created another audio uh, mixography in Spotify for each chapter. So anybody who that's kind of reading, if you're I not going done it with each chapter, I did it with a couple of chapters. I can't even think of one that I that I looked up that I couldn't find anything, but it's all very much oh. uh, appreciated. Well, thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there is also, I will say this, I'm working on a, a niche. I mean, this is going to be up in what, four weeks? Yeah. Okay. By that point, the, uh, the, uh, you're getting an exclusive here, har har. Uh, but I'm doing a, uh, I'm, what the heck is it called? Uh, hold on a second. A substack uh, for about DJ sets. Awesome. Yes. So that's, that's going to very be very exciting. Yeah, that'll be up fairly soon. And that'll be some historical, some keeping up, some like archival interviews. For example, I decided I was like, well, I have all these interviews from the book. I'm going to try to like find some good ones that talk about DJing. And the first one is going to be a two parter. I'm going to do it across two posts over two weeks with Josh Wink, who is a great DJ and a great interview, like really nice guy knows his stuff, has real history to impart, like has real, you know, that's a guy who was straddling worlds in, in uh, at a time in the 90s when, and this is to an earlier point as well, there was a very strict line between the club house people and the underground warehouse techno people, a huge line starting around 92. And that would eventually become bridged again. But a lot of what the 90s were about were people. It was very tribal musically in terms of DJs and dance music. And it was because you couldn't afford to buy all the other records. You had to buy within your field and you had to keep up, et cetera. So it just didn't behoove you to spend all that money on 12 inches that you weren't going to play if you were a professional DJ or even a semi-professional. And then, of course, all of that changed with the Internet. That all changed with uh, MP3s because you didn't need it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear our last track. This is Rihanna featuring Calvin Harris. We found love from 2011. And that was Rihanna featuring Calvin Harris with We Found Love from 2011. And so, Michael, one thing about the book is, you know, Simon Reynolds was very open in Energy Flash with his aesthetic agenda. And it was something that he was kind of advocating for as it happened and kind of helped uh, lay the groundwork for Jungle to emerge out of, of um, Hardcore House. You keep your preferences a little closer to the vest. Uh, uh, somebody who's read the book like three times, I still have a 
you know, you still kind of surprise me sometimes when you diss something or you give a wink to something. Um, are there any particular subgenres or creators or scenes that you really had a lot of hopes for that didn't pan out or anything that where you feel like, ah, yes, I picked this, picked this one early and it, and it did become a big deal. Um, no, not really. I think there's a lot of very talented people making this stuff. I mean, it's been really nice to see Todd Edwards blossom. That's somebody I've always loved. And to see him sort of on seeing him on the Grammy stage for the big Daft Punk win was nice. Um, you know, that's somebody who I interviewed him at length for Stylus. And it was like he was at that point, you know, working as a telephone operator. He was like a, a working in a call center because the money wasn't there anymore. Like the, you know, the post 9-11 thing had happened and people were not going out as much and people were not buying 12 inches and he wasn't making any money and he had to like work. And to sort of see him go from that to being, you know, getting an album of the year with Daft Punk was really, really sweet, I thought. Um, and and I'll pick another person is DJ Cozy, who is somebody who has just never stopped being like intensely creative over his entire career. Like his his catalog is just teeming with greatness. Um, I will note that all of the songs that you've been playing on this episode made the top 20 or the top five of the Rolling Stone list that I co-wrote. Yeah, that's where it all came from. I went through that and I picked, <laughs> I, I worked my way through the the, the specific uh, kind of years and eras. Yes. So basically I, uh, that like, you know, in that particular case, the cozy track was suggested by the editor. And I was like, well, there's so much else. But one of the nice things about writing some of those entries is getting to spotlight other things. So in the, as it was just like, oh, well, I'll just like mention these other songs he's done. You know, these two remixes, this one track, because that dude is fiercely talented, really, really good. Like his... Even I don't love every single thing, but everything I've heard is at least interesting in a way that like you just don't get from many creators of any kind. Now, I know we got to wrap this up quick, but I did want to mention you have a new book or relatively new. It's called Can't Slow Down, and it's an extensive analysis of music in 1984 and tying it into the underground is massive. What evolution or evolutions in dance music? did you kind of note that surfaced from that year that 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 really sticks out to you well the two th well I, there's a whole chapter in it that takes place as a, you know the 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 landing spot for that is the uh the new music seminar in august of that year and that one was pretty fun to do because i had written a thing for mix i had taken parts of it for mix mag and turned it into a 2500 word piece about the club life of new york in that period so that went straight in um there was james brown and africa bambata to deal with there was madonna and jellybean which was part of that new york piece and then i had done also for pitchfork another piece about the birth of Chicago House in 1984, actually 84 in Chicago as a locus of both uh, house music's birth and industrial and or yeah, punk post punk industrial and, and house music. 
And so the house music part went into this chapter as well. So it's got a pretty and different, uh, a pretty extensive and also very different account of that. Um, I I got to reuse some quotes for, that I had not been able to use. I used some of the interview material for The Underground is Massive in that chapter. And the one thing I did not do, which I kicked myself for, even though I understand there was just, you know, so much time and so much space, is I forgot to mention that 1984 is when Cybotron released the song Techno City. Oh, but it's not that big a deal because I feel like in The Underground is Massive, I correctly historicize things a little bit by mention. you know, to me, it, Detroit Techno exists in, you know, in a lot of ways already prior to 85. But when Juan Atkins starts Metroplex and puts out the first model 512 inches that feels to me like the official start like the other stuff feels a little like a prelude and that feels like the official start of detroit techno even though i know that that's almost certainly wrong yeah it's hard to draw those lines and michelangelo our guest has been michelangelo matos himself uh, for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we're concluding our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And Michelangelo, thanks so much. It's been a wonderful guide and well worth the time, the weeks we've spent discussing it. You've wrangled a pretty gnarly history into imminently readable a book. Thanks so much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate will return with Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Alt to continue their discussion of metal evolution with a look at grunge. Techno Roll will be back in six weeks. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.